Acts 28, actually beginning in verse 11 tonight. As you have seen, the book of Acts is very selective. Jesus said that the gospel is to be carried to everyone in the world. Preach the gospel to the whole world. And yet the book of Acts does not record the gospel going to the whole world. It records the gospel selectively going from Jerusalem, spreading throughout the Near East, and then finally going to Rome. Of course, we have other records of church history. We know that Thomas left Jerusalem, that he traveled to India and started a great work. We have the records of the Egyptian revivals and northern Africa coming to know Christ. But Acts doesn't cover any of that. Luke specifically wrote with a purpose. And his purpose was chapter 1, verse 8. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you will preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Luke shows how the gospel started in Jerusalem. There was just 12 people and then 120 people in an upper room. Then 5,000 men get saved, plus their wives and kids. Another 3,000 get saved, get baptized. Persecution happens. They move into Judea. The church moves up into Antioch. And eventually through Asia Minor, Greece, and into Rome itself. Paul is showing us how the Christianity, though it started in the Middle East, became actually a movement that spread throughout the world because it went to the very heart of the world, the Roman Empire. Without promotion. That's what, this is great. The book of Acts shows you what God can do through men and women devoted to Him. I love this. No hype. No promotion. No major advertisement campaigns. Just lives changed. Sharing with other lives. Their lives getting changed. Sharing with other people. Or a little revival happens here. And just by word of mouth and by changed lives, God did a great work as he commissioned the disciples to go into all the world, specifically Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles, and the message spread. Now, as you remember, Paul's great desire was to go to Rome. Though he didn't think he was going to go as a prisoner, he wanted to go there. He could dream about it in his thoughts. He wrote a letter to the Romans. And with great anticipation, you can read between the lines as he wrote to them and said, So as much as in me... I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Later on he said, Having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hope to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you, if first I may enjoy your company for a while. He could taste it. For years he dreamed of going to Rome. Though, as we read, He anticipated that he would take a missionary journey. On his way to Spain, he says, I'll just drop by. Well, he dropped by, but he dropped by rather permanently. He came as a prisoner. But Paul knew that he would get to Rome. Because back in Acts 23, God said, Paul, be of good cheer, man. You're going to make it to Rome. You've got to preach the gospel in Caesar's household as well. That promise accounts for Paul's strength the last few years. As he was having trial after trial, people were persecuting him, kicking him out of a town, out of a synagogue, and this shipwreck in Acts chapter 27. You know, it just seems like one bad turn after another. What kept him strong? He had a promise. God said, you're going to appear before Caesar and share your faith. 
So we already read at the first part of this that they came to Malta. They spent three months in Malta, this island, on their way to Rome. And after three months, probably beginning in late February, they go on their trip once again on a ship. Verse 11, After three months we sailed in an Alexandrian ship, one from Alexandria, Egypt, North Africa, whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. So the two favorite gods of the seafarers, sort of like the ancient patron saints of seamen, were engraved on the front of the ship as the figurehead. It was a corn ship, a grain ship from Egypt. And it took Paul the rest of the way. And landing at Syracuse, we stayed there three days, and from there we circled around and reached Regium. And after one day the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli, where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Appi Forum and the three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. And when we came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with the soldier who guarded him. They come to Puteoli, that is the port of Rome at the Bay of Naples. Still a long walk, several miles, about, oh, 45 to 50 miles from where the water touches the land to get to Rome. There's a couple lessons, though, I I just think we can't miss in verses 11 through 16, and that is, first of all, the importance of friendship. We have read this so many times, and yet we haven't stopped to consider In verse 11, after three months, we sailed. That little word speaks volumes to me. Paul never traveled alone. He always had a team. He always had friends to share his ministry with. And in this case, Luke, the doctor, is writing. He had his own personal physician, not bad, when you travel. Plus a few others. And as we went, this is what happened to us. So Luke is traveling with him, and it shows the importance of friendship. You know, Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he sent them out in twos. I think for accountability purposes and for encouragement. There's nothing like doing something with someone else who's a close friend who can reflect back spiritual thoughts to give you encouragement, to push you along the way. I don't know if you've ever done a sport before like running or bicycling, but it's kind of a drag when you do it alone. When you have somebody with you, You know, there's almost a little bit of fun, friendly competition that goes along with it, a little bit of encouragement thrown in there, and it seems like you can go a lot further. It was Solomon who spoke about friendship this way. He said, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If one falls down, his companion can help the other one up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls. He has no one to help him up. So Paul here is with his little band of friends. You know, I think some Christians picture Paul as sort of this independent, I don't need anyone, pioneer maverick, sort of like the New Testament Clint Eastwood. Just sort of, look, I don't need you guys. God speaks to me. I'm accountable to no one but God. Buzz off. I'm going to do God's work. Not at all. Paul rarely traveled alone. In his first missionary journey, he had people. His second, his third, he had a whole group. 
And even on his way to Rome, as a prisoner, he had friends with him, which gave him great encouragement. Listen to what Paul wrote in a couple of his epistles. He said, being diligent, or excuse me, you be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick, so do your utmost to come to me before winter. He always had a team. And when he was alone, he longed for companionship. As he wrote to Timothy, come. I have personally been blessed by friends in the ministry over the years who have been a source of great value and encouragement to me. They've given me new ideas. They've been colleagues who have called me into account. Or they said, Skip, I don't know, have you really thought this over or have you thought of this alternative? I've been blessed by friends and a staff of co-workers, pastors and leaders in this church that have served along me here in my missionary journey here. Faithful staff members who do the ministry and do functions in the ministry, perform certain things I can't come close to doing as well as they can do it. Now, I know that some people think the pastor is supposed to leap tall buildings with a single bound and catch bullets at his teeth. and be... Not this one. How I rely upon those that God has placed around me, not only in paid full-time staff, but those lay leaders who are so gifted, as we heard of a couple of them tonight, faithful in what God had called them to do. I'm blessed by it. Uh, I found a quote by George Eliot that I'd like to read to you. He said, Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but to pour them all out just as they are, chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then, with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. Then, with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. There's a little book that was written about Christian friendships. I was going to bring a note tonight, and I forgot to bring it, but... I received a note from a lady this week. She said, Dear Skip, my husband, along with many husbands of other friends of mine, other girlfriends of mine, have a difficult time, it seems like, bonding with other guys or having good, strong friendships as men. She said, Now, for us, it seems to come more easily, but for some reason, it's just hard for them to lock in to just sink their teeth into, I'll commit myself to some men's group or a prayer meeting or some kind of thing where I can let my hair down, be vulnerable, and share who I am with them. She said, please pray for us. Please encourage others to get involved. I know there's a, prayer, a men's prayer meeting and, and activities, but boy, they need it. You know, she just was pleading with me, pray, do something, announce it. Of course, I've seen that need for a long time. You always find people who say, well, nobody's friendly. The Bible says he who has friends must himself be friendly. Hey, there's a lot of folks around here, not just in big groups, but in small groups. It's just a matter of taking a step of vulnerability, a risk, letting people know you for who you are. That's not easy, especially if you don't accept yourself before the Lord for who you are. But 
once you do, to be loved unconditionally and to have friends who can support you is awesome. Paul did. He was not a loner. Then there's the importance of Christian fellowship. Look over here in verse 13. Or verse 14 when they came to Puteoli. Where we found brethren. And were invited to stay with them for seven days and then we went toward Rome. And from there, when the brethren, those in Rome, heard about us, they came to meet us as far as the Appy Forum and the three inns. Forty three miles, the Roman believers walked to meet Paul so that when he got to the Appy Forum on the Appian Way, the great road that goes from the coast to Rome directly, they could walk with them. And Paul says, when we saw them, or Luke says, when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. Took courage. You know, I'm sure it was strange for Paul to be out on that boat and look around. He always wanted to go to Rome. Here's the port city. He sees the warships of Rome in the distance. The power of Rome is everywhere around him. He felt intimidated. He knew he'd get to Rome, but not this way. And maybe he's having second thoughts. Maybe he's getting discouraged. He's feeling a little apprehensive about this going to Rome before Caesar business. See, in Jerusalem he had friends. He has friends now, but he doesn't have the church around him, the support of the believers. But when he saw these believers come from Rome, he took courage. You say, well, I don't know. I don't think Paul was ever discouraged. I think he was greatly discouraged. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he says, we were perplexed. He said we were persecuted. It came to a point where we were almost crushed and we were struck down. Listen again carefully as Paul writes these words to Timothy. This you know, Timothy, that everyone in Asia has turned away from me. Now, was that true? Did every single person in Asia turn away from Paul? No, that's not true. But that's how he felt. Everyone in Asia has turned away from me. He said, including Demas, having loved this present world, he has forsaken me. In World War II, the enemy conducted experiments to find out the most effective type of punishment to extract information from a person. They found it was solitary confinement. Isolate a person, alienate a person, and you can get anything you want out of them. That's why Christian fellowship is so important. It's not an option. Fellowship is important because when you isolate yourself away from the body of Christ, you are placing yourself in a temptable position. You lose strength. You don't have your soldiers around you. When you are with people and you share your heart with them, they can give you strength, encouragement to go on. We need it. Now the purpose of fellowship is to refresh. Paul saw them, he took courage. His spirit was refreshed. I want to underscore that because we toss the word around loosely. Say, well, we're going to go fellowship. And what we often mean is we're going to hang out together. He's a Christian, he's a Christian, I'm a Christian. Of course, we're going to drink coffee. You can't have fellowship without coffee. Perhaps a meal, that always uh, promotes good fellowship. And so we say we're going to have this kind of a fellowship or that kind of a fellowship. The purpose for fellowship is spiritual refreshment. That's why there must be some element of 
encouragement, the Word of God, songs unto the Lord, to refresh our spirit. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, I want to come to you with joy by the will of God and be refreshed together with you. Here he's being refreshed by the Romans that he wrote to. Again to Timothy, he said, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Do you have that? Do you have ties with other people? We've said this often, but it bears underscoring again. Are you a spectator or do you become involved? Are you the kind that likes to just come into the service, maybe during the worship, sit toward the back, it's all over, be the first to leave or sit toward the front. I'm not picking on you if you're sitting in the back tonight. But that's it. You don't really want to get involved. The more ties you make on a consistent basis with other believers, the more refreshment you get spiritually and the stronger you'll be as a Christian. We share this, of course, with new believers. They come to know Christ, and we say there's a few things you have to know. Number one, read your Bible. Number two, pray. Number three, fellowship. Get together often with God's people. Commit to groups of people. You'll be there consistently, not sporadically. And the example we often use is that of a barbecue. You go in your backyard, you put coals, you put gas on the coals, you light them. They start burning because they give off heat one to another. If you isolate a coal off the pile and you come back maybe 20 minutes later, if you look at the one coal that's been isolated, it's cold, it's not burning, it fizzled out. You look at the pile of coals that are huddled closely together, they're still cooking, they're going strong, they're giving and receiving heat. So it is with the Christian. You isolate yourself, you alienate yourself, and you push people away, and you find that you start fizzling out, losing the strength, losing the fire. Paul saw them. He was refreshed. He took courage. And if he had any fear at that point, it was gone. You know, large churches can be very lonely. Small churches can also be very lonely. It really depends on what kind of a person you are and how you reach out and how you get involved. It really does. There's no such thing really as, well, that's a friendly church. Well, they're not a friendly church. Listen, there's all sorts of people within every church. You can decide to be whichever you'd like. You can be a very lonely person, withdrawn and isolated. Best to definition I've ever heard of loneliness is malnutrition of the soul, which comes from living on substitutes. Once again, malnutrition of the soul that comes from living on substitutes. Paul loved when he saw the brethren. I love when I go to a foreign country. I don't know the customs. I don't know the people. I get a little intimidated, especially if I go alone and somebody says, Skip, I'll pick you up at the airport. I'm in the airport. Sometimes I've waited for hours just saying, I hope this person shows up. I don't know a soul in this country. When I see the brethren coming, it's like, hot diggity dog. Even if you don't speak their language, I found there's one word everyone knows. That's hallelujah. In every language, it's the same. So I go, hallelujah. They go, oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. And it's, we have a great time. <laughs> and now Paul makes it to Rome. That's Puteoli. In verse 17, he scoots onward. And we read, it came to pass after three days that Paul called the leaders of the Jews together. So 
He goes to Rome with the brethren. He has to get over boat lag for a few days. Then immediately he meets with the brethren. You know, I think Paul believed what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God. After he got a few days of rest, he was at it again. And uh, when he had come together with them, he said, Men and brethren, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans, who when they had examined me wanted to let me go, but because there was no cause for putting me to death. But when the Jews spoke against it, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had anything of which to accuse my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and speak with you, because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. And so they said to him, We neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported and spoken any evil of you. But we desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken of against everywhere. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Talk about a crash course in theology. It would be great to sit under Paul's ministry from morning till evening. And let him explain the Old Testament, the New Testament, the fulfillment of Christ, the prophecies, and so forth. And when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul and said, and excuse me, they departed after Paul said one word. This is it. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our father, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this people has grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn, so that I should heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had a great dispute among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. It's interesting. Paul gets all the way to Rome. The first thing on his agenda, get all the Jewish leaders together. I want to have a talk with them. Now, it was Paul who said to the Jews in another city twice, because you refuse to hear the word of truth, we're going to turn and go to the Gentiles. You reject it, fine. Your blood be upon your own heads. We're going to speak to the Gentiles. And he turns and speaks to the other nations. It was the Jews who hounded Paul for almost 30 years now, and in some cases tried to assassinate him. Why then does Paul go back to the Jewish leaders? Why the first thing when he gets to Rome is he says, hey, let's get all the leaders of the synagogues together. I want to explain a few things. He does it for two reasons. Number one, he wants to assure them that he is not there to create trouble. 
It's not that he's on some kind of a rampage to discredit Judaism, to get back the people who have falsely accused him. So he says, I just want to assure you of that, that I'm here for no uh, malcontent reason. And secondly, because he followed a pattern. He said the gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Greek. First to the Jew, then to the Greek. And I think that is still a pattern. Now, some people see that as historically fulfilled. I don't. They say, well, that was back then. The Jew heard the gospel first. They rejected it. Therefore, God rejected the Jews. Not so. Because every single time Paul said, fine, if you reject it, we go to the Gentiles. What does he do? The very next city he arrives in. Goes to the synagogue. He wasn't saying, you have been completely forsaken by God because you rejected the truth of the Messiah. He was speaking to the group of people in that town. Fine, if you're not going to receive it, we'll go to the Gentiles. If you're not going to receive it, we'll go to the Gentiles. But still, he outreached to the Jewish nation, began in the synagogues, and then spread the gospel to different places. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9 for just a moment. Just go ahead. He gets to Rome. This is a letter that he wrote some years before to the Romans. Listen to Paul's words with great passion as he writes this. Chapter 9, verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. My heart is filled with sorrow. If it were possible, if I could be accursed and pushed apart from Christ, that they might be saved, I'd do it. Who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Look over at chapter 10 of Romans. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God cast away His people, whom He foreknew? Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And Paul really develops the theme more in chapter 11. But here's the point. Israel had forsaken Paul and Paul's message. But Paul did not forsake Israel. Why? Because though Israel has forsaken God and rejected Christ, Jesus Christ did not forsake them. Now, my amillennial friends will say that All the promises that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament are now completely taken away and they apply only to the church. That's hogwash. God does have a plan for us, the church, those who have come to know Him by grace. We have the kingdom to look forward to. 
But so do the Jews. I'm not just saying any Jew, but those who come to know Christ by faith. And during the great tribulation period, 144,000 of them, the remnant, will come to know the Messiah. Know that all of the prophecies in their scripture have been fulfilled in Him. They'll embrace Him as the Messiah. And God will enact a special plan for the house of Israel. And God will use the 144,000, I believe, as a catalyst to spread the gospel to the innumerable hordes of people alive in the world at that time. Listen to what uh, the psalmist predicted. He said, God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause your face to shine on us that your way may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. God in the future will use the Jews as a key to world evangelism. Though now, it seems that comparatively few Jewish people know Christ compared to many of us. Though they seem to be very hardened against it, there will come a time when God will pour out His Spirit upon those people and many of them will come to know Christ. And it will be an exciting time. So Paul goes to them, shares his heart with them. In verse 17, he tells them basically, I'm innocent. Uh, he says, I was imprisoned. In verse 18, he says, I was acquitted. They found that nothing uh, uh, was wrong. Uh, and then finally, he says again in verse 18 that he was forced to appeal his case. In verse 20, he says, For this reason, therefore, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you because for the hope of Israel I am bound with this chain. What was he speaking of? What was the hope of Israel? The hope of Israel has always been that a Messiah, a deliverer will come and free the Jews from slavery. Take away the yoke of bondage. Especially now that the Roman government has taken and with an iron hand forced them into this place of subjugation. They were looking for the coming of the Messiah. The Scriptures anticipated it. The prophets foretold it. The hope of Israel. So he's saying, the reason this has happened to me is because I am living and believing what all of you should. A few chapters back, he speaks to King Agrippa as he's giving his great defense before him. And he says, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to the fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes earnestly serving God day and night, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused by the Jews. So he gets them together, gives them a heavy witness, shares, I assure you I'm not here to spoil your party. I'm not here to bring vengeance against the Jewish people. He shares his faith. They said to him, verse 21, We've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren who came reported or spoken any evil of you. We, we haven't even known who you are or that anything bad has happened at your hand. But we desire to hear from you what you think. For concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. And when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. Don't you wish you could do that? Don't you wish you had the power, the ability, the wherewithal, the background 
to get a group of people, even in your own home, in your own neighborhood, and effectively present the gospel in a way that they're persuaded, you can do it. You can do it. That was a rhetorical question. It comes by availing yourself to God, presenting yourself, Romans 12.1, studying the Scriptures. Just study them in any kind of fashion you'd like, whether you read through it in a year consecutively, sporadically, like you read Genesis and then Matthew. You use study helps. Study it, read it on your own, and then try it. You will be surprised how effective God can make you when you just step out and say, okay, Lord, I'm going to open my mouth here. I hope you fill it. I've opened my mouth many times. It's gotten me into trouble, but here I go. Lord, anoint it. You'll be surprised the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance. In fact, you're probably walking away thinking, I didn't even know that I knew that. I was great. Lord, you were great. Thank you, Lord. The Spirit of God will come upon you. You don't have to rehearse it. It'll happen. Paul was a student of the Word for years. He was able to testify, but if you're a believer, you study the Word, you avail yourself to God, so are you. Verse 24, Some were persuaded by the things which were spoken. Others disbelieved. That's always the case with the Gospel, isn't it? There's always a division, and we shouldn't be surprised. In almost every city that Paul preached in this great book, people were divided. Some loved him, some stoned him. Some followed the gospel, some kicked him out of town. Jesus said, don't think I came to bring peace on earth, but a sword of division. Families will be divided, Jesus said. Father against son, daughter against mother, and mother-in-law and so forth. And a man's enemies will be from his own household. It always brings division. When you take a stand, and it did with Paul. He shares out of the book of Isaiah, saying basically you are dull of hearing. And then we get to the last two verses where obviously we close the book. Paul dwelt for two whole years in his own rented house and received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. During this time, it seems like the record is obscure as to what Paul did after this. We know that Luke was really the only one that was consistently at his side. He sends for Timothy. Demas has forsaken him, he said. Epaphroditus and Mark from time to time will come along and see him and deliver letters for him. What did Paul do during these two years? Did he sulk? Can you picture Paul in prison in Rome going, God, why? How could you let this happen to me? Why couldn't it have happened to someone else? I'm an important preacher. I'm the apostle, in fact. I've written more of the New Testament than anyone. Actually, he couldn't have said that because he did a lot of that from Rome, actually, itself. No, he didn't sulk. He was active. He did write letters during that time. He wrote to the Philippians. He wrote to the Ephesians and he spoke about the warfare and the weapons of our warfare, no doubt viewing the Roman soldiers with all of their regalia in prison. And he likened them to the armor of God. He wrote to the Colossians. He wrote to Philemon. And some of the greatest letters we have 
are because God allowed by His sovereign will Paul to suffer in prison. And then he preached. He didn't just sit back and say, well, my preaching career is obviously over. I mean, I can't go out and plant churches anymore, so I think I'll turn now to writing. I think that's my forte. No. He was very verbal. He wrote to the Philippians. Listen to this. He said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me, he's writing this from a Roman prison cell, the praetorium of Caesar's household that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. Paul was in, as we said, that special prison. He had the praetorian guard, the elite guard hand-chosen by Caesar. Those of Caesar's household who were chained to Paul the Apostle. Imagine being chained to Paul for maybe four, six hours at a time for years. You couldn't leave, man. You couldn't say, hey, you keep talking, I'm going to go get a taco. I'm not into this anymore. You were chained to the guy. And then when you were done, somebody took your shift and for years... Well, Paul alludes to the fact that many of them in Caesar's household, the Praetorian Guard, the elite, had come to know Christ. In fact, later on he says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. It got to be that after a while, some of those guards came to know Christ. And then pretty soon they were looking forward to the shift with Paul. Hey, can I take your shift tonight? Paul was really getting into some good stuff. No, it's my turn tonight. You have it tomorrow night. (laughs) Especially those of Caesar's household. So Paul used his prison as a pulpit. A place of confinement became a place of wonderful ministry. He didn't sulk and say, if only I could be out, I'd be more effective. He writes to the Philippians who are all bent out of shape. Hey man, Paul's in prison. The great work can't go on. Let's let's have a petition. Let's pick it. Let's get him out. No, don't get me out. This has happened by the grace of God to spread the gospel. How else would these people, the Praetorian Guard, ever hear the gospel as I were there? I have a great prison ministry. And in the book of Philippians, where he wrote that, He spoke of the word joy and rejoice more than any other of his epistles. You know, that thought and that lesson is the answer to many of your dilemmas. Some of you have jobs that you could only describe as flat boring. And you feel confined. You hate it. You hate your boss. Your co-workers are really nothing to speak of. You think, God, why do I have to have this job? Hey, God's got you there for a purpose. So that maybe you could write a letter someday that said, many of my co-workers greet you who have come to know Christ. For the furtherance of the gospel, I am in this place. Some of you may even have a handicap of some kind. Some people in this church do. You feel like you're in a helpless arena. 
chained by some affliction. Paul never gave up. Paul said it's for the furtherance of the gospel. There's a guy uh, who was the prime minister of Britain at one time named William Pitt years ago. He painfully hobbled around on crutches because of a degenerative disease in his leg. A guy came to him one time. He said, General Pitt, I am facing so many impossibilities, it's getting so hard for me. And Pitt got mad at him. He raised his crutches. He said, Impossibilities, sir! I walk on them. I'm not going to let this slow me down. I'm not going to give up because something has happened in my life. I happen to be in a place that is difficult and hard. God knows about it. God has allowed this to happen or allowed me to be in this place. Why can't I use it for His glory? Impossibilities, I walk on them. I think of Susanna Wesley, a mother of 19 children, all her own. What a job. Okay, you think, whoa, yeah, you know, such a privilege. Yeah, privilege, but 19 bowls of cereal every morning. 19 stages of diapers. I mean, that's a lot. She invested her life into those children. By the grace of God, God has given me as a gift these children Oh, what a pleasure it is, she thought, to raise them. She wrote about it. Two of her children, John and Charles, became some of the greatest evangelists in Britain. Shook the British Isles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think of Charlotte Elliott, an invalid confined to a bed for years. In her suffering and pain, she wrote a song that is sung at every Billy Graham evangelistic crusade, just as I am without one plate. She wrote that song while she was in pain. Lord, here I am, just as I am, without one plague, but that Thy blood was shed for me. God can use you wherever you're at, if you allow Him to. The lessons of friendship, fellowship, usability. All outlined in the book of Acts. All demonstrated in the book of Acts. It's been a long study. It's been a rewarding study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to You as Charlotte Elliott did and we say, just as I am without one plea. Lord, take us the way we are. You've equipped us. I pray that we would not judge effectiveness by externals. But we would invest ourselves into the work that You've called us to do, giving all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength to serving You. Even to the point where we might be able to say that the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the Gospel. Lord, save us from lashing out at You and complaining about our lot in life. And instead say, Lord, what do You have for me here? What is Your mission? In Jesus' name.